how great thou art. It's the greatness of God that drives the instruction of the text that's in front of us this morning. I invite you to go with me back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning. We've talked about it before, but we live in a day, a world, that is full of abundant caution. Um, You may hold a different opinion than I do, but I find myself often just kind of like, do we really need another warning about that? Um, Because of the litigious world that we need, or we live in, people feel the need to go, let me just warn you about this, and that, and that, and Certainly, we recognize, I would acknowledge, there are plenty of cautions that are appropriate, that are helpful. We're like, man, I'm, I'm really glad I got the warning there. I shared with you uh, the church replaced the car that I drive at, uh, in the last year, and it beeps and reminds me of all kinds of errors in my driving. And my kids are going, so what was that one for? Um, and I'm learning, okay, yep, I, I need to work on my driving. I suppose that's helpful. Like if someone's coming behind me, it tells me, hey, stop, don't keep backing up. That's good. On the other hand, there are lots of cautions that uh, I kind of look at and I run past very quickly. Uh, one of those is when it comes to going somewhere to eat and them saying, now, now listen, this is hot. Like on a scale of one to five, like, how, like this is a, a hot dish. Like how hot do you want it? And I'm like, I like hot food. I like spicy food. I'm not worried. Like, because inevitably, at least for me, I'm like, this is unnecessary. I guess everybody, everybody's normal, likes bland food. Uh, and so I'm always like, you know, it's fine. Five's good. Like, let's, if you got six, we'll go six, okay? It's not a problem. I can recall, though, two times where that was a bad decision. One was the first time the church graciously sent Melinda and I to the Refresh Conference in Iowa. We went out for dinner, and very early on, I was sweating, and Melinda was laughing. And I think all through the rest of the night, it felt like my lips had a sunburn, and it took me a while to stop sweating. The other time was in Myanmar. Uh, we, had, uh, we were getting ready to wrap up, and Dr. Wolf, Pastor Cap, and I were sitting at a restaurant, and he had given us caution over and over about, like, we don't want to eat that because that's been washed in water, and we're not sure, so we want to be careful with that, and that's hot. And I'm like, well, I, I like hot. And so we're eating in the restaurant that's at the hotel we were staying at, and I ate it, and almost immediately I went, that's a problem. That's not good. And the difficulty of that heat lasted beyond the meal, from the flights, uh, from Yangon, or from Tadim to Yangon, and to this day, I'm like, that I will not eat again. His caution was duly warranted. Stay away from that. Again, My experience, maybe yours is different, 99% of the time, those cautions, eh, no big deal. However, that 1% when you get it wrong is incredibly significant. The text we come to today in Ecclesiastes gives us a warning that is unbelievably significant. It matters for every last one of us. It's not one of those, like, take it or leave it. Do you like spicy food? Do you not? This is one of those warnings that every believer who desires to worship God, and really every individual needs to heed before God. We we just heard beautifully sung God's greatness and His work. 
We don't want to go then to worship that great God and run past the caution that Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Before we begin to look at that caution in verses 1 through 7, I just want to briefly remind us of where we've been so we get the flow of the text of where the Spirit of God is taking Solomon. In going to Ecclesiastes, we are listening to the wisest man who has ever lived, who also, by the Lord's blessing, happens to be a very wealthy individual. And Solomon sets out on a quest, both using his wisdom and his wealth, to explore life, to find meaning in life, and he first turns to pleasure. It's been a while since we were in chapter 2, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he takes the resources in his hands and goes, I'm going to try alcohol. I'm going to drink. Then he goes, you know what? I'm going to build lots of stuff. I'm going to acquire lots of possessions. I'm going to have lots of musicians. I'm going to have many women. And he comes through all of those attempts at finding pleasure and says, it's all worthless. It's all vanity. It's all like chasing the wind. And he comes out of that pursuit of trying to find pleasure, saying it's all vanity, and begins to look at life and all of its different seasons. And what does he see? Problems. We spent quite a bit of time last week going, let's look at the problems that Solomon sees, the injustices, the oppressions, the selfishness that take place in the world. You know, as we go through what Solomon sees as those problems, many of us find ourselves going, yeah, and those things still exist today. We live in a world marked by selfishness, marked by injustice, and going, it just doesn't seem right. And Solomon, at points along the way, having pursued pleasures and concluded that it's vanity, seeing all of the problems, comes to the same conclusion, goes, what's the point? I mean, even in the bleakness of the text, at the beginning of chapter 4, he goes, it's better just to die. And then he goes, no, no, actually, it's better, verse 3, to have never been born. I mean, Solomon is grappling with some incredibly weighty issues in this book. And yet, as he walks through it, he pulls himself out time and time again to come to the right conclusion. To go, actually, what we need to do is fear God to trust God, and to enjoy what God has given. And we've seen this theme repeated now a few different times, whether we were in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 or Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're not going to get there this morning, but it's at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 again, where Solomon says, you know what's good for us to do? It's to enjoy the life that God has given while fearing him. Living with a life-orienting respect for God that says, God, because of who you are, because of all that you do, God, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to live for you. You're going to dictate my life because it's in your control. It came from you anyway. He's pointed to God's sovereignty a number of different ways. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, in all those seasons of life, what did he point to? the sovereignty of God. He says, God's making everything beautiful in his time. Not my time, not your time, but in God's perfect will, in his way, he makes all things beautiful in spite of the problems that he sees. 
I mean, in the problems that we walked through last week from Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16, all the way through chapter 4, he comes down and says, actually, verse 17, Ecclesiastes 3, 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. I can trust God. You may have caught it in the text today, but I'll just go ahead and point it out to you one more time. We'll see it at the end. He concludes by saying, fear thou God. In the midst of all the problems, in the midst of the seeming emptiness, what matters is that we live with a life-orienting respect for God, that we fear Him. You know, there's a temptation that can arise when you're like, well, you know, if, if I can't find pleasure by all these different things and there's all these problems, then maybe it's all just meaningless and it doesn't matter. And it's almost like Solomon hits the brakes in Ecclesiastes 5 and goes, some things matter. Like, when you go to worship God, you'd better be very careful. When you go to speak about God, you'd better be very, very careful. I think it's incredibly important in our world today that we catch and value and heed the caution that Solomon gives here. We live in a world that is far too casual and reckless when it comes to God and considering Him. His name will show up really in vain, in some way to just be used in some devalued speech. And yet here, as we come to Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7, we're going to talk about how we approach God, and really we could say it's about approaching God in humility. It's about approaching God in humility. He's sovereign, he's judge, he is great, and so how we worship him, how we approach him matters. Really, our thought for today is a caution for worship, the foolish abundance of words. A caution for worship, the foolish abundance of words. Next week, we're going to look, Lord willing, at a consideration of worship or the selfish approach to wealth. But this week, we want to look at a caution for worship, the foolish abundance of words. And I'll just note for us at the outset, because I may not stop every time along the way, uh, in this, these first seven verses of chapter 5, there's imperative after imperative after imperative. Like, here's a command, and in case you didn't get it, let me give you the same command again. Now, let me add another command in, and there's just imperative after imperative going, when you go to worship God, be careful about the foolish abundance of your words. We come to chapter 5, verse 1. We notice first that we need to approach worship carefully. Approach worship carefully. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Sure, you can think of examples in life. I thought back to a youth retreat probably 15 years ago of playing a game where the teens are blindfolded and there's eggs scattered all over the ground. I'm going, you're supposed to get from this side to that side. And of course, you've got guys who are like, no problem. And they go running across. Eggs don't matter. And then you've got others who are like doing the nursing home shuffle, trying to get across. You know, they're not lifting their feet. They're just sliding them, hoping to get there. Or maybe a better analogy is we've all been in those situations where someone drops a dish in the kitchen, it breaks all over the floor. It's like, don't come in here. You got to put your shoes on. And we're tentatively walking through because we don't want that glass in our foot. I think that kind of cautious approach ought to at least give us a mental picture when it comes to how we worship, because Solomon says, keep your foot 
watch your step. Guard how you approach worshiping God. Now, I think it's really good for us to note, particularly because of the culture we live in today, that he says, keep thy foot when you go to the house of God. He does not say keep your foot if you go to the house of God. Like, that's kind of lost on us culturally today, and I realize you're here, which is wonderful. But there are far too many people who say, well, I'm a believer, but it's kind of take it or leave it. It's presumed you're going to go to worship God. And when you do, it's really important that you consider how you go. This is not an excuse to then avoid worship altogether. Much of what we're going to listen to in the text today is important that we get correctly, because in a moment he's going to say, so be careful what you say. And so someone goes, well, I'm not going to say anything at all. That's not the point of the text. Someone could say, well, you know, he's given this caution about approach worship carefully, so maybe I should just avoid worship altogether. You missed the point. He's saying, when you go, watch your feet. Be careful how you do this. Approach worship carefully. Second, as we look at this caution for worship, we say prioritize listening attentively. Prioritize listening attentively. First, he gives a command here. Be more ready to hear. Be more ready to hear. The idea of the word here is like leaning in to listen, right? I kind of laughed at this thing about how this often works in life um, because as an adult, sometimes you're trying to get a student's attention, a child's attention, and you're like, hey, and you're leaning in to talk to them. And they're kind of like, ah, go on. And we're like, no, 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 look at me. Look at my eyes. So we can make sure communication is occurring. I think far too often, many of us are like the child as God is talking to us. And we go, but, but I got a busy week and I got this going on. And we need to hear from God. But we're not like leaning in going, God, what can I get today? Like right now, you're here in church. The word of God is being communicated. Are you like, I need to get this? Or are you thinking about lunch? Your week? The game? How tired you are? Like, hey, be careful. Approach the worship of God carefully. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear. Now, again, this is not a prohibition against speaking altogether, but it is a caution. You know, for every one of us, myself included, it is far more important for me and for us to hear from God than it is for us to make promises and commitments to God. I need to hear from God. We all need to hear from God. And so he gives this command, be more ready to hear. Prioritize listening attentively. But beyond the command, look at the contrast. He says, then to give the sacrifice of fools. Saying listening to God is a chief responsibility in worship. Like some of us view listening as something passive. Those who work with children regularly know listening is not passive. In fact, you probably know from your work environment that listening is not passive. Because there are times where we hear, in fact, if I want to pick on the husbands for a moment, your wife probably gets this. Because like, ah, ah, and then later, like, so what did you say? Or she says, I told you. 
And it's like, I heard, but I wasn't listening. You know, when we come to worship, we all have a very active responsibility to listen to God. Rather than, you know what, I'm, I'm, I got stuff I'm going to say. I mean, I sang the songs. I mean, I talked to God. I said things when I sang. I, like, I, I sang truth to go, Jesus, engrave it on my heart that you are the one thing that I need. You're needful art. Like, God, I need you. And we're given these commitments. And then it comes to hearing from God, and our mind is somewhere else. We're failing the text here. We need to approach worship carefully by prioritizing listening attentively. The command is given, be more ready to hear than the contrast of giving the sacrifice of fools. To go, but, but God, here's what I got going on in my life, and I'll pray to him, I'll make commitments to him, I'll serve him, but I'm not as interested in hearing from him. Solomon here isn't focused on hey, what's the quality of the preaching? He's not here focused on, did you like the music? Solomon's saying, you need to listen to God more than expressing your opinions or giving God your instructions or what you're going to do. Beyond the command and the contrast, notice the concern. When we give the sacrifice of fools, when we offer our words more than listening we are not considering that we are doing evil. Here's the concern. Here's why he gives this command. Because if I walk in and I'm going to sing and I'm going to serve and I'm going to talk to people, but I'm not going to hear from God, I'm giving the sacrifice of a fool, and it's evil before God. It calls to mind those texts that we run into, particularly in the prophets, where God's like, enough! Don't give me any more sacrifices. Your heart's not in it. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I want your heart. I want you to listen to me, to love me, long before you ever serve me. And Solomon's saying, we need to approach worship very carefully by prioritizing listening attentively. Third, we need to avoid speaking irresponsibly. We need to avoid speaking irresponsibly. This is this caution for worship, the foolish abundance of words. He now gets to the primary point when we come to verse 2, be not rash with thy mouth. We could say it this way, we avoid speaking irresponsibly by guarding how you speak. By guarding how you speak. And really, two thoughts rise out very quickly in verse 2. We are guard how we speak with our mouths but we also guard how we speak from our hearts. I love how insightful and, yes, biblical this is. He says, be not rash with thy mouth, or don't be hasty to just let it come out. But then he says, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. He's cautioning us to be careful of words that are impulsive and emotive, where I'm just really quick to go, man, and out it comes. He's like, Check your mouth, but don't just check your mouth. Check your heart before you check your mouth. It calls to mind Jesus' same instruction to religious people in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day, and in cautioning them, what does he say? It's out of the 
This is verse 34, end of the verse. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so Solomon here, long before that, is saying, don't be hasty, don't be rash, don't be quick to talk with your mouth, but also watch your heart, how you think on the inside, because as Jesus would later say, what's in there does come out in what we say, right? So we have to be very careful. We avoid speaking responsibly by guarding how you speak. Secondly, we avoid speaking responsibly by understanding who you are. We avoid speaking irresponsibly by understanding who you are. Okay, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty. Here's why. God is in heaven, and we're not. Right? He's transcendent. He's supreme. He's sovereign over all. He sees and knows what's going on. So it's far better for us to hear from him than for us to go, God, I don't understand why this is going on in life, and begin to complain and just kind of pour out. Go, be careful. Again, be careful, because God knows. It's interesting how this works, but if we go back to Matthew 12, that same text, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just two verses later, in verse 36, he says, Jesus says, I say unto you, every idle word that men speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. So don't be quick to speak, because God's in heaven, you're on earth, or as Matthew 12, 36 says, because God takes all of our words, and he does hold us to account for them. He's the evaluator of them. So when we approach worship, we need to avoid speaking irresponsibly. It's not that we're to be silent. We are supposed to speak. Like, go look at the Psalms. We're called to worship God, to praise God, but we ought to do it carefully. Can I challenge us, maybe even the way that we sing, to go, hey, I want to make sure that when I sing, this represents my heart. This isn't just a matter of duty and routine, but this represents where I'm at. And if I'm not there, why not? What do I need to deal with? That is not, again an excuse not to sing, right? We can look at the uh, illustration of the Psalms. We can look at the illustration of the New Testament church to go, this is what we're called to do. We can look at the commands of Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and go, I am supposed to sing praise to him. But I also want to make sure that I'm not offering the sacrifice of fools, that I'm not doing evil, that I'm not letting my heart and my mouth be hasty and quick to utter things before God because he's in heaven. So I avoid speaking irresponsibly by guarding how I speak, by understanding who I am, and third, by limiting what I say or limiting what you say. He says, therefore, let thy words be few. Again, I realize there are some in the room like, I'm good with that. I'm not a talker. And there's some good wisdom in that. I understand that. I've shared with you many times. That's often where I've found myself through life. But you know what? God does want us to talk. God does want us to interact with one another within the body of Christ. God does want us to give praise to him. But others, you might be quick to speak. The text is calling us to be careful, to go, hey, God's in heaven. Be careful. Let your words be few. We live in a fast-paced world that has all kinds of tools of communication 
at its disposal. We've talked about that before. I mean, even in English alone, like the, the average person in America, they estimate, speaks between seven and 20,000 words a day. That blows my mind. I'm like, who's counting? Right? I guess if we can count our steps with a watch, we can probably count the number of words that we say too. But between seven and 20,000 words a day, the average American knows between 20 and 30,000 words in the English language. The English language has approximately a little over a million words in its vocabulary. I think Pastor Gingery is close to knowing all of them, but it's just my two cents, okay? You know, we have a lot of ways to communicate. We have a lot of words to communicate. But the text here admonishes us and says, limit what you say when it comes to worshiping God. Solomon's well acquainted with this. Reminds you of some of Solomon's other wisdom. He says in Proverbs 29, verse 11, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28, He that hath knowledge spareth his words. Then in verse 28, Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. He that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Proverbs 10, verse 19, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Where the one that I found my mind on most this week is actually in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 19. Wherefore, let every man, or wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. It sounds very much like Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Because, God, I want to hear from you. I don't want to come in and go, God, here's what I want to do for you, and here's the request that I need for you, and here's the commitments I'm going to make to you. God, I need to hear from you. And yes, I want to praise you. I want to testify. I want to give praise to you. But God, I need to hear from you. Solomon states this wisdom illustratively in verse 3. He says, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business. The idea is that, you know, dreamers are schemers, and then he's going to go on to say, and fools are talkers. It's the idea, here's this guy who's always got a plan. You know, he's, he's a mover and shaker, and he's like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to find success this way. And he's got all these dreams that really never materialize. You ever met someone like that who, like, you can't really ever speak into life at all because they've got it figured out, except it never works out? They've always got a plan, but it's a pipe dream. That's what Solomon's saying here. It's like, there's this guy, and he's just busy, and he's got all this going on, and but the reality is in all of his scheming, he's dreaming. It doesn't materialize. He's like, just like that's true, fools are talkers. They just keep running their mouth and running their mouth. He's like, before God, that is severely dangerous. They talk a good game, but they walk in foolishness because that's where the end of the verse in verse 3 goes. A fool's voice is known by multitudes of words. When it comes to worshiping God, approach worship carefully. Prioritize listening attentively. Avoid speaking irresponsibly. And now fourth, keep your word faithfully. Keep your word faithfully. To go, you know what? When I say, I will follow through. I think many of us know what it's like to meet those people. Perhaps you've been guilty of this as well, where in, in order to convince someone that you're serious, you're like, honestly, you're, 
or even maybe worse and more so. It's like, well, well, I swear this is the truth. And we're trying to persuade people. I, I, I'll, I'll follow through. Or I know this is true. We ought to take great caution in what Solomon is laying out here to just say, when I say something, I will follow through. Keep your word faithfully. Here's the command in verse 4. You'll notice first that it's expressed as a responsibility. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Not only is it expressed as a responsibility, it's explained with a reason, for he hath no pleasure in fools. And then it's emphasized by repetition, pay what thou hast vowed. I mean, he goes through, he's like, here's your responsibility, here's the reason for it, now let me repeat it again. Now, the admonition here, and we talked through this a little bit, even when we went through church covenant things, is not to say, never make a vow. But when you make a vow, you'd better be very careful that you're going to follow through on what you say that you vow. You better mean what you say. So, for example, we can go through the Old Testament particularly and find examples of people making vows that are held in honor before God. I mean, God even gives particular instruction about a vow called the Nazarite vow. To go, if you're going to take this vow, here's what it means and here's the responsibilities that go with it. Or as another positive example, we could go to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and see Hannah pray before God because she wants God to give her a son. She makes a vow in praying to God and she follows through on her vow. I can only imagine that the difficulty in following through on her vow, but scripture clearly shows that God honored what she did. God used what she did. Again, we could see Israel make a vow in Numbers 21. We could go to Jonah chapter 2 when Jonah's in the fish and see Jonah make a vow to God. I mean, there are vows that have positive outcomes in Scripture, but there are also foolish ones. We could go to the book of Judges and see Jephthah's vow. We could think of the embarrassment of Saul in first first. Samuel 15, 14, 15, where he's like, okay, no one's to eat, and anybody does, they're going to die, and we find out, oops, Jonathan, kind of the hero of the day, what are we going to do now? Saul's kind of embarrassed because he can't really follow through on his vow. The point Solomon makes in Ecclesiastes is if you're going to say something, follow through. To me, I think I can make this argument biblically, but I will certainly assert it personally, It does not matter if we're just saying this is my promise or this is a vow or it's just our word. We need to follow through. To go, you know what? I said I would do this. I'm going to follow through. I promised I'm going to do this. I'd better follow through. I made a covenant, a vow, a contract. I'd better follow through. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, verse 37, teaching on this idea of vows and swearing. And what do you swear by? He's like, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about swearing by this or by that. Instead, Jesus' instruction there is, let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. If I say yes, it means yes. If I say no, it means no. James 5, verse 12 is very similar. But above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be yea, lest lest you fall into condemnation. Just be a person of your word. One writer said it well, kind of summarizing this text, just three words, four words. Simplicity safeguards your sincerity. 
Be careful how much you say and how many commitments you make. Let your words be few. Keep it simple so that you follow through. In looking at this idea of keeping your word faithful, we've looked first at the command that was emphasized responsibility, given a reason, repeated. But secondly, look at the comparison. Just like what happened before, we go from the command to a comparison. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. It's like if you make a vow, pay it. Okay? Now again, this is not a reason, not this is not a reason to never vow. But when we do, we'd better follow through. I, th- I think of those prayers, some refer to it as foxhole theology, kind of those desperate prayers where it's like, God, I'm in a bind, and God, if you'll just do this, it might be something really simple. God, if you just do this, I'll be faithful to church. It's like we're bargaining with God, which is a really bad approach. But if we find ourselves there, whatever we tell God, we'd better follow through. It's better to not have told him than to tell him and not follow through. Again, I think of Hannah. God, she's begging God for a child. God gives her a son, and she's like, nope, thanks, God. I can't do it. It's too hard. Not good. The comparison here is it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Having looked at the command and the comparison, notice third, the concern. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine heart, hands? Saying, guard your mouth against sin. You don't want to go to worship God and go, well, well, God, I committed to this, and then turn around to to God's messenger and say, sorry, that was a mistake. I didn't really mean it. The word angel there throughout the Old Testament in its broadest sense simply means messenger. There are times in the Old Testament where it's used to refer to a priest or a prophet, someone who is just a messenger involved in the work of God at the temple or the tabernacle. And then there are times where it's more specifically used for an angelic being. Which one's here? It doesn't actually overly matter which one. The point is the same. To go, There's no justifiable excuse to any messenger of God to go, well, I told God that, but I didn't really mean it was an error. That's a mistake. It's wrong. Don't fail to keep your word and have God stand against you not a prohibition against commitments, but a caution in doing so. In looking at this caution for worship, the foolish abundance of words, we've said, number one, approach worship carefully. Number two, prioritize listening attentively. Number three, avoid speaking irresponsibly. Number four or five, keep your word faithfully. And then lastly, worship God reverently. This is what it boils down to. It's what I alluded to at the beginning, having listened to how great thou art. Worship God reverently. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities. You, go, you know, when, when we're just talking a lot and we're dreaming, it's like, well, it'd be cool if this happened. So God, you know, if you can make that happen, then, then I'll do this. He's like, you know what? In all of those dreams, those imaginary things that fleet and go by and you give these words, it's all empty and worthless. But you know what's better? Just to live with a life-orienting reverence for God. Fear thou God. To go, God, you hold me accountable for my words. God, you can judge for my words. So God, I'm going to be very careful before you. I want to live with a reverence of you. So we approach God 
reverently, soberly, humbly, not with just a bunch of empty promises and statements. Like, we want to come to worship God meaningfully, to hear from God dependently and humbly. But I would also add, and we'll see this at the end of the chapter, we do so joyfully, enthusiastically, to go, God, here's what you've given me in life. I, you are sovereign over all, and I, I do want to be very careful and reverent and right as I worship you, and I, I want to hear from you first. I don't want to offer you the sacrifice of fools by just talking all the time, but God, I do want to enjoy the life that you've given. I want to worship you soberly and reverently, but also experience the life that you've given joyfully and enthusiastically. It's a pretty important caution in the text when it comes to worship God to go watch out for the foolish abundance of words. Approach God. Approach worship very carefully. Prioritize listening attentively. God, I need to hear from you. Avoid speaking irresponsibly. And when you do speak, which you should, keep your word faithfully. But above all, worship God reverently. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text the challenge for us to evaluate personally how it is we come before you to worship you. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ready to hear from you through your word, by your spirit, rather than first thinking of what we're going to do and what we're going to serve and how we're going to give or what we're going to request first we would be ready to hear from you. And then, Lord, as we do speak, that we would avoid the error of foolishness of just multiplying what we say and then not following through. Lord, you are above all. You're sovereign. You're transcendent. And you do deserve our worship. And so, Lord, I pray that we would live with a life-orienting reverence of you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.